when I was a kid, I was one of the very few children in the world that actually liked Hebrew school. I liked it for a very simple reason. During regular school, you couldn't talk to anybody. I grew up in a family with all boys. I loved talking to girls. The only place I could talk to girls was Hebrew school. So when I get to Hebrew school, I talk to every girl in the room. And the teacher would get really angry at me. And uh, rather than just, you know, screaming at me, because she knew that I was a good kid and I come to Shul Shabbos, so she'd say, go to the library. To which I would say, great. Because <laughs> I loved books. I loved sitting and learning books. The library, the synagogue was a pretty good library. And you could sit there. I, I learned a lot of Judaism reading the books in that library. Um, the one time when I was in about fourth grade, the teacher got angry at me for talking again in class. And she said, uh, you know, Yitzchak, telech la sifria, go to the library. I said, okay. She said, wait, you need to do something for me first. I said, anything you want, Mora, what do you, what do you want? Write me a book report. I said, okay, I'll write you a book report. I know how to write book reports. I am good at writing book reports. not so hard. Um, you have any restrictions? What, what book should I write the book report on? She said, you know, write it on the Torah. I said, you can't write a book report on the Torah. She says, it's a book, right? I said, yeah, then you can write a book report. Have it ready by 5 o'clock, you know. So I go to the library. I found a copy of the JPS translation of Torah. I sit down with that, you know, that rough elementary school paper and my number two pencil, and I start writing. <laughs> Title of the book, right? The Torah. Author. Uh-oh. <laughs> I just wrote unknown. <laughs> Publisher. Jewish Publication Society of America. Right? And now, you know, all the great questions of a book report. You know, who's the main character? What's the plot? What's the climax of the plot? How does the climax resolve itself? And the all-important, would you recommend this book to your friends? <laughs> so I wrote a book report about the Torah. Now, we don't usually write book reports around the Torah. Usually when we study Torah, we study a shtickle of it, like a little bit. You study a section, a parsha of the week, or a chapter, or a verse or two, or a section. You very rarely write something as global as a book report about the whole book. We'd very rarely take that kind of global vision of the whole tradition. I want to suggest tonight that we're going to write that book report together. Because I'm going to suggest that one of the tasks of a moment of discontinuity, which as I mentioned this afternoon is where we live today, one of the principal tasks of the moment of discontinuity is to answer a question which very rarely gets asked in Jewish life which is, what is the meaning and purpose of Judaism? What is the meaning and purpose of the Jewish people? Why be Jewish? What does it say? What does it mean? Not in its little shtick. I don't want to know about sukkahs, right? Or Hanukkah candles, or, or, or kashrus, or, or a chapter. I want to know the whole shtick, because if we're going to answer the question that the young person asks us about why I should choose in, it's so the do you love me question, then we have to have some way to answer that question. What is this all about? What does it say? So I'm going to suggest the following. Even if you don't like my answer, which is highly likely, because I'm a rabbi and you're Jews and that's the way the world works. <laughs> Even if you don't like my answer, you at least have to go find another one. 
You have to find a different answer. But you have to ask, answer this question because in a time of discontinuity, this level of global questioning is exactly the kind of conversation that we need to be having. In 1964, Look Magazine, remember Look Magazine? Did a cover story called The Vanishing American Jew. It was an article by a Harvard sociologist who made the following claim. American ethnic communities last three generations. The generation that comes to America, their children, whose parents still speak the old language and cook the old foods, and their children, who have a grandparents who still speak the old language and eat the old foods, and, this, and the family goes to see grandma or bubby or umma or umpa on Sundays. By the time you get to the fourth generation, said the sociologist, you stop having that identity. It stops meaning anything to people. It becomes simply a quirky affectation. For example, we have very few Italian-Americans left. There's Little Italy in New York, but it's all owned by Koreans, right? <laughs> and all the cooks are Mexican, right? There's, there's little Korea in L.A., but they're in their second generation. Give them four generations, you'll see what happens. There are very few Irish-Americans left. There once was a very vibrant Irish-American community in New York City. There was an Italian community in New York City. There's very little of that left anymore. Very little. Because in the fourth generation, you now have become so Americanized. You've lost the immigrant experience. You've disconnected from the old country. You disconnect from the culture. And you choose to be more of an American than what you came from. This sociologist in 1964 said, that's where American Jews are now headed. In 1964, which was really the third generation of American Jews, also happened to be the year that Fiddler opened on Broadway, ironically. He said, by the end of the 80s, you're going to have the fourth generation, and by the turn of the millennium, the fifth generation of American Jews, there'll be no American Jews left. There'll be just sort of bastions of super-orthodoxy, but very few, no one else is going to maintain the culture of Judaism the way that it has grown in America since the beginning of the 20th century. Now here's what's interesting. Look Magazine is gone. We're still here. <laughs> why is that? Why is that? Why is Look Magazine gone and why are we still here? No, I'm, not, I'm being very serious for a moment. Because there is something more to this Jewish project than simply ethnic affectations. There is something deeper a deeper sense of collective purpose, a deeper sense of collective identity, a deeper sense of culture than simply the kind of ethnic cultures that our neighbors brought from Italy or Ireland or other kinds of places. And that's what we have to figure out, what it is and how to nurture it if we intend to exist, to survive and to thrive into a sixth generation and beyond. What I intend to do is give you a book report about the Bible because I think that's a great way to think about the meaning and purpose of Jewish existence. The Bible begins, and the main character of the Bible is a character called God, G-O-D. You might have heard of him. Now, the God of the Bible is not the God that you learn in theology school. This is not a God who is omnipotent and omniscient. This is not a God who can do everything and knows everything. In fact, this is a God who doesn't know much about anything. He may be able to bring light out of darkness, but when it comes to people, he hasn't got a clue. The Torah is really God's learning curve, God learning how to deal with people. So God creates a world, a beautiful world, 
and everything he creates, he says it's good. And then finally he creates a one singular creature that is created in the divine image. And he brings that creature into the world. And he says, now it's very good. And he puts this creature called man into the world. And he gives this creature a singular gift. You can choose for yourself. You have free will. Every other creature is programmed to be what it is. Ladies and gentlemen, in a hundred million years of evolution, there has never been a dog that woke up in the morning and said meow. Not one. I know this for a fact. There has never been a dog that woke up and said, today I'll be a cat. There has never been a porpoise that said it wanted to be a platypus. There has never been a porcupine that said it wanted to be an octopus. Every animal wakes up in the morning as exactly the same as it went to sleep the night before. Every animal is programmed by nature through instinct to be what it is. You can teach an old dog new tricks, but you can't teach your dog to not be a dog. However, you and I, as human beings, we have the singular gift of human free choice. We can get up in the morning and choose who am I going to be today? What kind of human being am I going to be today? How will I relate to other people today? We have free choice. And God takes this creature with free choice, puts him in the world and says, here is my world, enjoy it. Just do good things. Take care of my world. Take care of my world. In fact, it says that in the Torah. If you ever want to know what human existence is all about, it says he took the man, we'll do this tomorrow morning, and he put him in the garden, l'shamra u'la'avda, to take care of it and to, and, to, and to guard it. That's your job, till and tend the world which, by the way, is the bracha that I taught my children when we recycle. When we recycle, when we put soda cans in the recycling machine, you say a bracha. It's not, a, it's not an option. It's a mitzvah. Because you have a commandment to till and tend the world, to guard and protect the world. So it's baruch atad amelch alam, asher kitshan sivanu, lishmor et hagan, to guard God's world. That's the mitzvah. That's the bracha over recycling. And he puts this man in the world, and what does this man do? He disobeys. He says, don't eat from my tree. And that's the first thing he does. Well, his wife, actually, but that's tomorrow's story. <laughs> we'll learn that one tomorrow morning. Now, God is disappointed. So he throws him out of the garden. And God watches 10 generations of human beings become murderous, violent, corrupt, deceitful, and ugly. And God gives up. I could create a good octopus. I could create a wonderful porpoise. I could create porcupines with soul. I can't create a human being to share my dream of a good world. I can't create a human being. And God says, to hell with it. I'm going to throw it out. It didn't work. This experiment didn't work. And God is about ready to destroy all the life on the planet when suddenly his eye catches one guy who has potential. His name is Noah. Act two. If God couldn't create a good man, a man to share the dream of a good world, Maybe he can choose a good man, a man to share the dream of a good world. And Noah seems to have, have character. So he chooses Noah, wipes out everybody else, and starts over again with Noah. This don't work either, because Noah comes out of the ark, and the first thing he does is down 10 bottles of Manashevitz. <laughs> and God says, Vavoy, what did I do? And 10 generations go on. And the world turns back into corruption and violence and deceit. And God once again says, this is terrible. But God made a promise. I'm not going to destroy it again. I couldn't create a good man. And I couldn't choose a good man. Act three. Maybe I can teach a man to be good. 
Maybe I can teach a man to share my dream of a world of goodness. Maybe I could train and teach and inspire a community of human beings to share my dream of a world of peace and a world of goodness. And he starts, he picks a guy. I think, now the Midrash has a whole number about why he chooses Abraham. My reading of the Torah is he chooses him by accident. It's a complete random choice, right? You, 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 right? <laughs> Eeny, meeny, miny, Avram. <laughs> he picks this cat and he says to him, I want to make you a deal. Here's, you have it right here in the 12th chapter. This is the beginning of the Jewish story. We are the third act in God's dream. The third act in God's drama. I couldn't create a good man. I couldn't choose a good man. Maybe I can start with the raw materials of human free will and teach and inspire a man to share my dream. So he comes to this guy, and the Lord said to Avram, Lech go forth from your native land, from your father's house. I want you to get out of town. I need you to get out of the cultural world you were raised in because I want you to start again. I want you to begin your life over again. Get out of town. Get out of the place where they know you. Get out of the place where you have, where you have position and power. Get out of the place where you have privilege and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And here's the blessing. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. Now, in ancient Near Eastern mythologies, and not just Near Eastern mythologies, but in, 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 in ancient mythologies in general in the Western world, this is a common trope. This is a cultural theme that is repeated many times. The God chooses a man to be his representative on earth. And when a God chooses a man, he offers him these things. These are the normal things. And the Torah knows you know these stories, and it knows that you're going to you know, recognize these as common. I'm going to make you a great nation. That's wonderful. And I'm going to bless you. Noch besser, right? And I will make your name great. And now comes something else, something which is found in no other ancient mythology. bracha, and you will become a blessing. Now, well, that's a surprise. This is, by the way, typical of the Torah. It gives you something you're familiar with, something with you're familiar with, something with you're familiar with, and then socks you with a surprise. I will make you a great nation. I will, make, I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you, in turn, have to be a blessing. Interesting question. What does it mean to be a blessing? I know what it means to say a blessing. I know what it means to bless somebody. But what does it mean to walk the world and be a blessing? Interesting question. Now, the Torah always says something important. It always repeats it right away. That's why rabbis are so repetitious. It is not because we get paid more to talk twice. It's because that's a common rabbinic, that's a common biblical form of narrative. It's called parallelism. You say something, and then you say it again. That's why rabbis are always doing this, right? So God repeats it again. I will bless those who bless you. Lovely. I will curse those who curse you. Even better. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed or shall bless themselves by you. What an interesting, what is the national purpose? Be a blessing. You are to be the, the conduit of divine blessing to all the families of the earth. You are to be the vessel of divine blessing in the world. How do you do that? What does that mean? 
How does one conduct oneself if that's your self-consciousness? How do you, how do you, how do you fulfill that, that obligation? Is it ever done? What an interesting... And notice something else, which is so characteristic of the Bible. In the Bible, whenever the, the Bible, the Torah, tells you something of the election of Israel, the specialness of the people Israel, it also tells you your responsibility to the world at large. See, if I were writing the Torah, I would have just stopped with the part that said, I'll make your name great. Done. Wonderful. Congratulations. I'm God's guy. Touch me and I'll kill you. Right? That would have been fine. It's like the Godfather, right? You know? I'm watching you. You know? But that's not how it works. In the Torah, whenever you have an expression of particularism, you have a parallel expression of universalism. Whenever you're told that you are a special person in the world because you are the chosen of God, you are automatically, at the same moment, told, and this is what you got to do. Do for whom? For the world. That last line, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because you live among them. What a statement. I mean, we could stop here and ask some really interesting questions. Like, how are you guys a blessing to Orange County, California? What, is, what, is, what have Jews done in Orange County to be a blessing to the community of Orange County, whether or not they know it or not? Well, that's the question. And, 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 and what are Jews to the world? And what is the state of Israel to the world? I mean, these are interesting questions. The purpose of Jewish existence from the very beginning is not simply to walk the world and say, we are the chosen. It's to say, we have an obligation to be a vessel of blessing in the midst of the world, to share God's dream of a world of blessing. Now, this is a very interesting self-understanding. It's a very interesting identity. Be a blessing. Now, by the way, if you have kids or grandkids in the world, it's not a bad thing to tell them on Friday night. Be a blessing, right? I hope you go to Harvard or Yale or Columbia or Berkeley. I hope you become a doctor or a lawyer or a business executive, or a rabbi, or a musician, or an actor. I hope that you do. But you know what? That's not as important to me as whether, in the course of your life, I can look at you and say, you know, my child is taka a blessing to the world. I'd be much happier knowing that you're a blessing to the world, whether or not you become the lawyer or the doctor. I want to know, are you a blessing? That's how we evaluate a life. That's how we tell whether you're alive. Rabbi Spitz is my friend, and he's here, and it's a privilege to have him here. <laughs> rabbi Spitz, has been, how long have you been a rabbi? Almost as long as me. Long time, right? I've been a rabbi 31 years. I've never been to a funeral where a kid got up and said, I love my dad because he was rich. <laughs> Not one. Not one kid ever got up and said, I'm proud of my mom because she was a captain of corporations. I'm proud of my parents for the power that they wielded. You know what they say? Not, I'm proud of my dad for what he had, but I'm proud of my dad for what he gave. And every kid will tell a story. You know, there was a guy in the shop, and he was down on his luck, and my papa would pay him a little extra, and, 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 and my mama would, I mean, and, and everyone has stories like this about their, their family members. They're interesting stories. I, I, were, I live in LA. The big cemetery by us is Mount Sinai Memorial Park. 20,000 grave markers. Not one of them says B.A. Harvard. <laughs> Not one. Not one. A.B. Columbia. Ph.D. 
Not one of them. You know what they say? They're all, what are the name, what are the words that are listed on grave markers? They're all relational. Loving father, loyal friend, member of the community, caring soul, creative soul. Not one of them says, what a great, isn't it interesting? You measure a person's success after their life in very different ways than you measure it during their life. No one's SAT score is listed on any grave marker. Not one, not one kid. 800 in math, you know? Oh, he was an important person, you know. Isn't that interesting? Be a blessing, says God. Then you'll know you your life was worth something. Let the, let the nations of the world, let the families of the earth be blessed because you live among them. Now, what's interesting about this, it's starting to get warm in here. Isn't that interesting? Says, Torah brings heat. Isn't that great? Torah brings heat. Torah aura. So it's really light, not heat. So what's, what's interesting about this is, number one, is that this is the mission of this people. Number two, if God is coming to a man and saying, I need you to be my, my vessel in the world, what does that mean? It means that God isn't complete without the activity, the work, the partnership of this human being. So what happens when that idea sinks into the head of that human being? God needs me. I am God's partner. My job is to bring goodness into the world. So the Torah begins to think about this. There really is a very interesting position that this puts you in. And here's a story from the Torah. It's from the 18th chapter in Breshi, right? This is one of these stories that if you didn't know it was in the Torah, you wouldn't have written it yourself because it's like this mind-blowing story, right? Three angels show up in Abraham's tent. The first one says, Mazel Tov, you're going to be a father. And he says, that's impossible. Go talk to my wife. And he goes and talks to the girl and says, Mazel Tov, you're going to be a, a mother. He says, you know how old I am? You know how old my man is? And Viagra won't be invented for many, many years. So this is a miracle. And God says, what? You think that's not, it? I can't do this? Watch, you just watch, right? And that angel disappears. Now I got two angels left. An angel brings one message. So the two angels now are with Abraham. And they set out from there and they look down towards Sodom. Abraham walking with them. Now what happens is in the next verse, in verse 17, we change scene. Now we're no longer with the angels and Abraham. Now we're in God's mind. Now the Lord had said, to whom? To himself. God is ruminating. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Stop a second. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? What's the ostensible answer to that question? Of course you should. You're God. Right? Me, Feinstein. I have to tell my wife. I'll be finished over here at 9 o'clock. I will come to the room. Right? I am accountable to my wife. Right? Because we're married a very long time, and she needs to know where I am and what I'm doing every single minute of the day. <laughs> so I wear, this, I wear this electronic shackle, see? So she can find me, right? It's called accountability, right? If someone is your partner, your lover, your friend, you're accountable to them, right? God doesn't have a wife, so long as we know, right? So God doesn't have to explain himself to anybody. Right? If God wants to go to a basketball game on a Sunday night, he doesn't have to tell anybody. God can do whatever the hell he wants. And if he wants to destroy Sodom because he feels like it, he can. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Of course you should. You're God. What fun is it to be God if you got to go around explaining yourself to people? Right? That's what I have to do because I'm a husband. Right? And I work for a synagogue board, which is worse, you know? Okay? 
But now God, God's thinking, since, since, since Abraham is to become a great and populous nation and all the nations of the earth are to bless themselves by him. For I've singled him out that he may instruct his children in posterity to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right. If he's going to be my ambassador in the world, if he's going to be the vessel of divine justice and, de- and a vision of divine good in the world, then now I have to explain to him what I'm going to do. God is bound into a covenant. God is bound into a relationship. And God is now accountable to man. Chutzpah. God is accountable to man? Uh-huh. God has to explain himself. So the Lord said, the outrage of Sodom and Gomorrah is so grave, their sin is so great, I will go down and see whether they've acted according to the outcry that's reached me. That's a strange sentence. If the sin of Sodom is so grave and their evil is so horrible, the next sentence should say, I'll smash them like bugs. Why does he have to go down and check? Because now he's not simply doing what needs to be done. He's teaching how you do it. And if you're going to take policy, if you're going to take action on a policy, what do you have to do first? You have to go gather facts. If you're going to adjudicate a case, you have to take evidence. So God says, I got to go down and make sure. But not just make sure. Wait, it gets worse. Hold on to your hat. The men went from there to Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Verse 23. Abraham came forward. In Hebrew, it's Vayigash Avraham. The word Vayigash, a beautiful word. If, if the Bible knew baseball, it'd say, step up to the plate. Right? He get, it's it's a not a moving up. It's not a moving forward. It's a moving up. It's a spiritual moving up. Abraham moves into confrontation with God. Abraham comes forward and he says, and this is the greatest speech in the whole, new, the whole Bible. Ready? In my book. It's my book, so it's my book. Will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? What if there should be 50 innocent in the city? Will you wipe out the place and not forgive it for the sake of the innocent 50 who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to bring death upon the innocent as well as the guilty, so that innocent and guilty fare alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do justice. Now, that's actually a lousy translation. You all have to learn Hebrew before I come back to this weekend again. All right? Verse 25. Look at this verse. It starts with the phrase, Chalila lecha. Anyone know what Chalila lecha means? Anyone here have a Yiddish-speaking grandparents? Chas v'chalila is Hebrew. And in Yiddish you'd say, yeah, it's... So my, my, my parents, every, every Pesach, my father's a baker. My mother's a bakery lady. Every Pesach they went to Las Vegas for the conference. Right? And they left me at home with my brothers and my bubby. My bubby was a little tiny European lady. Later, I calculated her age and realized she was 52 years old, so that scared the hell out of me. But at that time, and she, and what would happen as soon as my parents would turn the corner, I would go and beat the hell out of my brother. And my bubby would say, go to your room. And I went to my room, my brother's screaming and crying. My bubby would come into the room and she wouldn't hit me. She'd look at me and she'd give me the look. It's the look perfected over 200 generations of bubbies. It's a look of utter contempt and disappointment and disparagement. It's a look of disappointment so deep, she'd just shake her head and she'd say, Gewalt, a schande, 
and the Herpe and the Schande. And I'd say, Bubby, beat me with a stick. <laughs> Take a broom and hit me with all your might. Just don't give me the look because it hurts so much. That's what Abraham says to God. Schande, Herpe, shame on you. And then Bubby would really get angry if I'd really hurt my brother. She'd go, Feh. <laughs> no translation needed. You get the picture. Abraham stands in front of God and he says, You're going to do what? You're going to do what? You're going to wipe out this city so that innocent people and guilty people die next to each other? Feh! Shanta Nacherpa! You can't do that. It, you're better than that. You can't do that. Shall, you know, is that the world you want? It's in Hebrew, it's actually much more vivid because it's vahaya katsa di karasha. So that in your world, there should be no moral distinction between goodness and evil, between right and wrong, between innocent and guilty. Is that the world you created for us? A world of no moral distinctions? Far bir lecha. Feh. Who wants such a world? That's not you, God. You're the judge of all the earth. Do what's right. Now, if I were writing the Torah, I would say, God smashed him like a bug. Because who the hell needs this? Who needs a big mouth Jew telling you what to do if you're the God of the universe, right? Right? Who needs this? Who needs this? Jackie Mason. Remember Jackie Mason, the comedian? He once said the greatest Jew ever lived was Menachem Begin, who will go down in history for one word. He said, all right. <laughs> okay, all right, you know, right? You want peace? All right, you know. This is, God, God listens to this and God doesn't object. God doesn't get angry. God says, okay, fine, you win. God doesn't smash him. God doesn't castigate him. God doesn't curse him. God says, okay, you find me 50 good guys. I'll spare the city. God changes his mind. God says to a man, you're right. You know my logic better than me. You have mastered my canons of morality. You really are my representative in the world, and therefore you can tell me what to do. Now, Abraham has sold enough rugs in the shuk of Beersheba to know that once you get a price on the table, now we can do some business. <laughs> He says to him, he says to him, what if I find, uh, what, what if the five, well, here I speak, my Lord, I am but dust and ashes. What if the 50 lack five? You know, you, you'd save it for 50. What are five? God says, okay, 45. He says, 45, 40. God says, okay, 40. 40 goes to 30. See, now it's the increments, right? The 30 says, okay, 20, 20, 10, 10. Good soul to the God of the universe. This is an absurd story. God, man is handling with God. Why? Because this is what you become when you become God's partner in the world for the task of bringing justice into the world, for the task of bringing right into the world. You can challenge any power in the world, even God himself. Even God himself can be challenged. And what this story suggests is that that's what it means to be a Jew, to walk the world and to see these things and to become upset, to become upset. Abraham could have said, people of Sodom, not my problem. Not my problem. They're not my people. Why do I care if you kill them or not? 
People love Gemara? Eh, who needs them? Abraham could have said, you're God. You have to make a decision. I obey. I obey. There's no submission. There's no subservient behavior. Instead, there's a rising up to challenge God on the basis of God's own morality. That's how you win an argument with God. You challenge God on the basis of God's own morality. And in that case, God says, okay. Now, what's the functional meaning of this? It means that you cannot walk the world and say, it's not my problem. If you see injustice in the world, you have to stand up and argue for it. You have to stand up and challenge it. You are not permitted to be cowed or driven into subservience by any power in the world. You are Abraham's children. And you're not permitted to give up. This is going to be controversial. The opposite of Judaism is not Christianity or Islam or even atheism. Jew stands up in shul and says, I don't believe in God. Nothing happens to him except the lady behind says, sit down, I want to watch the Barnes <laughs> But there is something you can say to get yourself checked out of Jewish people. It's when you say, I don't care. What is, is what is meant to be. If you say what is, is what is meant to be, and it can't be fixed, you have checked yourself out of the Jewish people. Because that's when you've given up your holy task of being a source of blessing for the world. If you give up the task of being the vessel of goodness in the world by saying, I accept the status quo as inevitable, and I give up the task of tikkun, of fixing it, you have checked yourself out of the Jewish people. Check yourself out of our, task, our, our, our struggle, which means on the one hand, on the one hand, we are going to have a lifetime of heartache. Tranquility, serenity are not Jewish values. No shul should be tranquil. If your shul's tranquil, scream a little bit. Bang, bang something. Serenity is not a Jewish, a, a Jewish obsession, right? Unlike my Buddhist neighbor, right? We don't, we, don't, we don't seek tranquility and serenity. We seek justice. And if you seek justice, it's going to break your heart. So we have a lot of heartache. You only get one thing in return for that. You get dignity. You get the dignity of knowing I am God's partner in bringing goodness to the world, which is the ultimate reward of, the, of a Jewish life. The dignity of saying, this is what my life has been devoted to. I have striven with all my heart and soul and might to be a blessing to God's world. And your grandchildren get up at the cemetery and say nice things about you. Right? That's what it is. That's what this story is about. Now, that's Abraham. God says to himself, I, want, I, want, I don't want just Abraham. I want a whole people to adopt this. I want a whole people to be obsessed with this. How am I going to do that? Well, here's how you do it. If you want to get a whole people obsessed with this task, you have to put them in a place where they can experience the opposite. If blessing is what we are about, then there is a place in the world which is the world capital of curse, and that's called Egypt. So God sends us to Egypt. Why does God send us to Egypt? For a simple reason, to taste the bitterness of a world without blessing. Egypt is the opposite of Eden. 
The Garden of Eden is a world of all blessing. Egypt is the world with no blessing, where all the light and all the life and all the humanity and all the softness and all the gentleness that is possible in human existence have been choked out of the world. That's Egypt. Why did we have to go to Egypt? Not only why do we have to go to Egypt, why is it that Egypt is such an obsession for us? The Mishnah says, in every generation, in every generation, each one of us has to say, I was a slave in Egypt. That's the first line of your autobiography. Not my parents came from Europe or I grew up in Boyle Heights, right? Or I graduated, you know, UC Irvine. The first line of your autobiography is, I was a slave in Egypt. You want to understand me? You got to know that I was a slave. Why? Because if you understand that experience, you'll understand what we are. 36 times in the Torah, you are told to do something because you were a slave in Egypt. I looked it up. I wanted to know why. I want to know why the Pesach Seder is so long. I want to know why. Here are a few of them. Take a look with me, shall we? Everybody okay? Bottom of the page. Ready? If you want to understand why Egypt, you have to see what the behavioral consequences of going to Egypt were. Exodus 22.20. This is Mishpatim. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. Why? For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You will not ill-treat any widow or orphan. You will not subvert the rights of your needy in their disputes. You will not oppress a stranger, for you know the soul of the stranger, having yourselves been strange in the land of Egypt. If your kinsman becomes poor and his means fail, you uphold him. Let him live by your side as your kinsman. Do not lend money at an advanced interest or give him food at accrued interest. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. Now, I could have said the same thing. The great philosopher Plato in Greece said that goodness is a cognitive category. To know the good, you will do the good. Problem is people forget what's good. The Torah disagrees. There are a lot of us who know what's good and still do what's wrong. If that were the case, if, if, if knowing the good, you would do the good, the Coca-Cola company would be out of business. Because Coca-Cola is no damn good for anybody. And yet we drink it all the time, right? If knowing the good were about, I would not have been on a diet my whole life, right? Because I know that this is no good for me, but it's just too damn good to say no to. The great philosopher Immanuel Kant said, you do the good as an act of will. An act of will, right? But we all know how will fails. So the Torah has a third strategy. Goodness is not a question of knowing the good. It's not a question of willing the good. Goodness rests on an ethic of empathy. When I see the stranger or the widow or the orphan or the helpless or the disenfranchised or that one, he who is socially invisible, when I see him, what do I see? What do I see? I don't see somebody in need. I see me. I see myself. I know him. I know his soul. I know his struggle. I know his pain. I live on the inside of his character. I live on the inside of his character. Because I was a slave in Egypt, it's really hard for me to roll by these people at the side of the freeway that say we'll work for food. Right? Because I was a slave in Egypt, it's really hard for me to vote on ballot initiatives against immigrants. 
I know what it's like to be an immigrant. My, my grandparents were illegal immigrants to the United States. They didn't come across the Mexican border. They snuck in from, they snuck in from Canada to Kenosha, Wisconsin. Right? Wetback Litvaks. <laughs> right? I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be a stranger, to be the outcast, to be disenfranchised, to be the subject of prejudice, the subject of discrimination. And I can't walk by that situation and not respond to it. That's the beginning of all Jewish social ethics. Take a look at this next one. This is my favorite one, so we'll take a minute to do We have time, Ari? Yeah, good. You shall not subvert the rights of the stranger or the fatherless. You will not take a widow's garment in pawn. Tell me that story. There's a story in that little tiny phrase. A widow's garment in pawn. Tell me the story. She was married to a wealthy guy. And they had kids and a house, nice cars, German television, Japanese television sets, German cars, and the way around, I think. <laughs> Send their kids to private schools, went on nice vacations. And then what happened? He died. And when he died, what did she discover? that he owed the IRS a bazillion dollars. So what did the IRS do? It came and took away the house and the cars and the television set and the vacations and the school tuition and left her living in a tiny little apartment with three kids and no means of support. And she couldn't go to work because the kids kept getting sick. And she couldn't afford health care. It's another political issue. I don't get into that one. Right? She didn't live in Massachusetts where they have really good health care because of the governor that was there. <laughs> What does she do? Takes welfare, social security payments, disability payments. And when that's not enough, she takes food stamps. And when that's not enough, she sells her ring, she sells her jewelry, she sells her clothes. And when she runs all of that, what does she do next? She sells herself. Take a widow's garment in pawn. You will not allow a human being to be stripped of all human dignity. Not a human being who lives in your midst. Not a human being who is part of your circle. You must not allow that to go to that extent. It's a brilliant statement. You must not allow a human being to be stripped of all dignity. To support her children, she sells herself. To support her children, she takes off all of the dignity of a human being. You must not allow that to happen. Why? Because that's what happened to you in Egypt. And you can't live with that. You remember the agony of that. And now you get three cases. Now the Torah gives you three wonderful dinim, three cases. Ready? Case one. When you reap the harvest in your field and overlook a sheaf in the field, do not turn back and get it. It shall go to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you beat down the fruit of your olive trees, don't go back, it goes to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather grapes in the vineyard, do not pick it again, it goes to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Always remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt. What's the rule? I got a field, I got a farm, I have, a, I have an orchard, I have a vineyard. Comes harvest time, what am I allowed to take? Just give me the din, what's the law? What am I allowed to take? Want, no, not here. No, not here. Not, the corner's a different law. You're right about that one. 
But in the stuff that I am, what am I allowed to take? One pass through the field. One pass through, the, excuse the expression, one pass over the field, right? What about the stuff that wasn't ripe on that day? What about the stuff that I couldn't reach on that one pass through? What about the stuff in between the rows that, that the harvester didn't get? What about that stuff? You can't go back and get it. Why? Yeah, by the way, this is not charity. This is property law. It belongs to them. In fact, the Talmud says you have to get off the field so that they're not intimidated to come and pick it up. It belongs to them. Now, I want to ask you three hard questions about this. Hard question number one. First things, you're going to get a farmer. I used to live in Texas, so I learned how to talk right, like an American. So the farmer's going to say, darling, I have a John Deere 397. It is the finest piece of farm machinery ever made by human hands. If I go over that field four times, I can get every speck of wheat out of that field. And here's what I'm going to do. At the end of the day, I'm going to write you all a check. And you all can take that check and take care of the poor, the destitute, the indigenous. I don't care what you do with it. Set up a food bank, a clinic, a school, a library. You just do whatever you want. I'll give you a check. Do we have a deal? What do you mean, no? I'm going to do the work for you. You all don't have to do the work. All right, you drive a hard bargain. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, darling. I'll give you double. You tell me how much that the poor could have taken out of my little field, and I'll give you double, because I know I can make it back. Don't worry about it. It's going to be my pleasure. I'll write you a check for double. You can take the money and give it to them. I don't care what you all do with it. Do we have a deal? We have a deal. Not according to the Torah, we don't. <laughs> what, what does the Torah say? Why not? Why don't we have a deal? Going to give you double. Double, folks, double. What's the difference between my harvesting the field completely and writing you a check and having the poor come and harvest their own? What's the difference? Say what, what? It's more than that. Go, go one more step. So what difference does that make? First of all, you ever done farm work? It sucks. Farm work is not romantic. I grew up in a labor Zionist home, right? Anu banu arts, alif not libanot, zoom, golly, golly, golly. I went to Israel. My first, I was 14 years old. I went on the kibbutz. I got on the tractor at 6 o'clock in the morning. We went out to the field. Farm work is romantic for eight minutes. <laughs> the next six hours, it was agony. My back hurt, my knees hurt, my hands hurt, my shoulders hurt. It was hot, it was boring. Boring, boring. It's horrible work. Why would you inflict it on the poor? I'll do it for you. Tell me why. It, it makes them go out and harvest their own field. Dahlia, what did you learn in Egypt? You were a slave in Egypt. What was the worst part of being a slave in Egypt? It wasn't the physical oppression. It was... The destruction of your soul, the, the robbing of dignity. And if you create a welfare system that robs the poor of their dignity and their humanity, you haven't done them a favor. If you feed the belly but destroy the soul, you have recreated Egypt. Don't do that, says the Torah. Let them come and harvest it themselves. Rule one. Rule two. I'm an American. Now, let me get this all straight. You telling me that after I planted that field, irrigated that field, cultivated that field, watched over that field, took care of that field, I can go over it only once? 
and someone else going to come and take the fruits of my labors? My God, you bunch of communists. I knew it, a bunch of Jewish communists. I knew y'all, a bunch of communists. I knew it. Y'all not American. It's my land. It was my daddy's land. It was his daddy's land. And this is the fruits of my labor. And you don't have any right to tell me what to do with it. Right? What do you mean, no? What, what, it sounds right? Okay. Well, this is Orange County after all, right? So I figured there'd be somebody here with a little old Orange County in them, right? Come on. It's what? But Ronald Reagan said it was. My God. What do you mean it's not my land? Whose land is it? It's God's land. Holy cow. My God, a bunch of Jewish communists. I knew it. Why is it God's land? What's the Torah afraid of? The Torah is afraid of something. We came out of slavery. What is slavery? If a man can say, this is my land. And then he builds a house and he can say, and that's my house. And then he owns a beast and he can say, this is my beast. And then he marries a woman and says, this is, no, uh-oh, it's right. This is my woman. You understand that the language of acquisition is used in many cultures, including Judaism, by the way, to, to describe marriage, right? Kenyan in Hebrew. Yeah, right, exactly. The, uh, and, and, and it wasn't until 150 years ago that wife abuse was outlawed in the United States. And there's still lots of places around the world where a man can beat the hell out of his wife and it's perfectly legal because it's his wife, his wife. If it's his field and his house and his beast, why isn't it his woman? And once we have kids, they're my kids. So if it's my house and my field, if it's my wife and my kids and it's my beast, then the next step is to say, that's my man. That's my man. Owning a man is not any different than owning anything else. It's just the next step in the acquisition of stuff. The Torah is afraid that if you can acquire anything, you will be tempted to acquire everything. If you can own anything, you will own everything. And so the Torah does something very radical. It tells you, you don't own anything. You know what the most radical expression of it is? You don't own your own body. You only rent. That's why you can't get a tattoo in Jewish law. Because that's like renting a car from Hertz, painting it purple, and bringing it back. They frown on that. Trust me. That's why you can't cremate in Jewish law. Why can't you cremate? That's like renting a car from Avis, smashing it into a wall, and calling them and telling them where the wreckage is. They really frown on that. Even if you take out the, 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 the damage collision waiver thing, right? It's not yours. You only borrow it for a few years. That's why you have to take care of it in Jewish law. You're not permitted to take any act, which is an affirmative act of destruction of your own body because you're destroying someone else's property. You don't own anything. Yes? Tattooing and cremation are two different categories in this. Tattooing is not such a big deal because there's even a machloka, there's an argument in the tradition about tattooing. Cremation is a little more difficult, right? 
You, you know, you're correct. You're, you're, you're correct. So there, there are lots of most rab, most rabbis that I know will, would not, would not refuse to bury a person with a tattoo. Cremation is a very different thing, and cremation is different for two reasons. One, there's a big difference in getting a picture of you know, Lady Gaga on your bicep and destroying the body altogether. I mean, cremation is a isn't cremation is interpreted by the Jewish tradition as a violent act against the body. And then some of them do. And then the second problem is, which is not religious but cultural, which is that after what we went through during the Shoah, that there's so many Jews who, that's exactly right, there's so many Jews who think that. So, so you know, th there's, that's, there's a difference, you get a difference in response from between the two. Although there's some rabbis, you know, who will do like, well, different rabbis will do different things. You knew that already, right? So now, no, it's exactly correct. It's exactly correct. So now, if you, the reason you don't own anything is because the Torah is afraid that if you own anything, you want to own everything. And we began as a culture that gave up on slavery. Third question. So there's this guy, and he owns a field. And the field's a mile square. And he harvests the field. And he can't sleep that night because there's one stalk of wheat that's left in the field, and it mocks him all night. You miss me. There's a grape on the vine. There's an olive on the tree that he missed, and he can't sleep because he missed it. There's that kind of personality. What do you call that personality? Obsessive compulsive is the psychological name for it. Good. What do you call that personality? I'll give you another name for it. That's a slave. A slave is not a person who owns nothing. A slave is a person whose possessions own him. And if a person can't, if a person harvests a field and fills his barn, if he harvests his vineyard and fills his, his, his silos, if he harvests his olives and fills his, fills his barrels, at the end of the harvest, he has to be able to say, I've worked hard, I've striven hard, I aspire for more, but right now, I have enough. A human being who can't say, I have enough, is a slave no matter what he owns. Remember the first Wall Street movie? And the kid asks Gordon Gecko, how many boats can you ski behind? Why are you destroying this company? Because remember, the guy buys the company. No politics here. The guy buys his company. He's part of a venture capital firm. And he buys the father's company, and he destroys the company because he could squeeze some profit out of it. And the guy said, you know how many people you put out of work? Why did you need to do that? You didn't need the money. And Gecko's response is, that's how we keep score in our world. And his response is, but you can't ski behind any more boats. You don't live in any more homes. You can't sleep in any more beds. When are you able to say, I have enough? Because only a person who can say, I have enough, is a free person. And how do you say, I have enough in Hebrew? Dayenu. Dayenu. That's what Dayenu is. Dai, 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 Yes, there's a great deal we aspire to. There's a great deal that we work for. There's a great deal that we, that we want. But, but we have enough. Tonight we have enough. Let's stop and enjoy what we have so we might be free tonight. That's what the Torah is trying to get to. What I'm suggesting to you is that the Jewish, the, the image of, of, a, of a people devoted to, this, to the pursuit of divine justice in the world God uses Egypt 
as the pedagogical tool, as the teaching tool, to infuse this people with that ideal. Because you and I are going to walk the world and measure every social situation by the, through the eyes of a former slave. And therefore, we're going to respond to the world differently. And I want to say something very important, because what I said before, this is not political. Political is what policy directives should we build in order to fulfill these ideals? I do not believe that Republicans are any less concerned for poor people than Democrats are. They just have different ways of solving those set of problems. The left and the right are concerned with this at, its, at their best, not at their worst, at their best. The left and the right are concerned with the same set of social issues. Healthcare, the poor, immigrants, building a just and equal society. The question is, how do you go about doing it? So I could see a right-wing political Jew who believes in this stuff with all of his heart but comes to certain set of policy directives that are different than the left-wing of the po political spectrum. Same thing in Israel. In Israel, the left and the right have the same vision of peace. Question is, how do you get there? How do you get there? So I don't think that the Jewish community is necessarily, although we all vote, 80% of us vote Democratic, I don't think that you need to say that's the Jewish way of thinking about it. I think the ideals are Jewish. I think the policy directives have to be part of a conversation that we have among us. So I can tell you that this is the ideal from the Torah. I don't know what policies lead us there. I really don't. Because I can understand that there are policy directives on both sides that might get us to those goals. Is that clear? I don't want you to walk out here and say, oh, he's some left-wing liberal from the valley. No, I'm really not, right? Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So. Right. So you look at the Talmud, and the Talmud does a great thing with this. Talmud says. Let's take all the laws of slavery and Judaism, put them next to each other. Here's the law of slavery and Judaism. You can only own him for six years, and the seventh year he goes free, okay? If he gets hurt, you have to pay for his medical care, and then he goes free, right? He eats before you eat. He has a right to ask you why you've asked him to do any job. If you can't explain to him why he's doing the job he's doing, he has a right to refuse to do the job. He gets a Shabbos off. He gets Friday night to Saturday night off. The Talmud says, in the end, no one would own slaves under these conditions because slavery, the slave ends up owning the owner more than the other way around. So what the Torah ended up doing is taking the institution of slavery and modifying it and modifying it and modifying it out of any sense, out of any sense of it really being slavery. And that's the way that the Talmud understood it, right? And then by post-Talmudic Judaism, you don't have slavery anymore. Because they just basically did away with the institution altogether. Yeah, that's exactly right. The guy who buys a slave buys a master. Because, you got, I mean, when you look at how many laws govern the relationship to the slave, it's just not worth it anymore. So you end up in a, in a labor, with laborers, and that's a different relationship. That's a different relationship. Although I, I agree with you. I'd have been much happier if that section wasn't in the Bible. So if I had an eraser, I would do this. Unfortunately, they won't let me do that. With my union, I'd get thrown out. So. 
All right, we have a few more minutes. I'm going to do one more source, then we're going to call it a night. Take a look on the back page. You all good so far? Everybody cool? Good. So I want to advance this from the Bible into the Talmud. And I want to advance the historical perspective from the time of the Exodus, which is 1200 BC, to right after the destruction of the temple. The temple's destroyed in 70. We talked about this afternoon. And Jews don't learn so easy. So 50 years later, they had another revolt against Rome, this time against a guy named, under a guy named Bar Kokhba. This time, the Romans really wanted to play hardball. And they came in and they just leveled Palestine, sort of the end of Jewish life in Eretz Yisrael. That's when this story takes place. And this is a remarkable story that's found in Talmud Shabbos. It's a very famous story of the Talmud. All of the rabbis were the students of Rabbi Akiba. Rabbi Akiba was publicly tortured to death by the Romans for the crime of teaching Torah in public. They brought him to the arena. They forced all of the Jewish community to sit there, and they tore the flesh off his body piece by piece. So all of these guys have been traumatized by this, traumatized by the destruction, traumatized by the Romans' oppression, traumatized by what they just did to their, to their rebbe, to their teacher. And they're talking about the Romans. And they're talking about what it means to live in a world that's controlled by another civilization. And how you as a minority civilization are supposed to relate to the majority civilization. So Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon were sitting together. And their student Yehuda happened to be sitting with them. And Rabbi Yehuda began by dis the discussion by observing how noble are the works of this Roman nation. They laid out streets. They built bridges. They erected baths. That was an interesting idea. Said, Look. We don't like Romans. We don't like their religion. We don't like their ethics. We don't like their morality. We don't like their politics. But you got to say one thing. They build nice roads. Now, what's he, what he's really saying? He's saying something very important here, right? I can partake in Roman civilization in the parts that are useful to me without letting the whole of Roman civilization corrupt my soul. I can send my kids to a school where they're going to learn Science, mathematics, social studies, civics, English. And that's not going to ruin their souls. There is something in the world, there is wisdom in the world that goes beyond the Torah. Jews know a lot about things, a lot about the world from the Torah. But you know, Jews never learn how to lay out cities from the Torah. If you don't believe me, go to Jerusalem. <laughs> what a badly laid out city. I mean, give vault. I mean, all they needed was a couple of good, you know, good Roman engineers, and you'd have a lovely city. The part that the Romans built, by the way, is the only part that works. The rest of it, right, especially now, they just put in the train on Jaffa Road. So every other road, you can't get a bus. It's a, it's a disaster, right? So what does Rabbi Yehuda say? Rabbi Yehuda says, look, he says, these guys know how to build roads. They know how to build bad. They know how to build cities. Right? I have a friend who sends his kid to an Orthodox day school in Detroit. One of the conditions of sending his kid to that school was you can't have a television set in your house. Why? Because they believe that you can't participate in the broader culture without it coming to poison your soul. And that television, whether you like it or not, brings a certain form of idolatry into the lives of children, and they don't want you to have any part of it. You have to sign a pledge, no TV in your house. Otherwise, they throw you out of the school. It's a really interesting idea. So the question is, can I, can I participate in the Roman world 
without it corrupting myself. Think about Nazis. I mean, that's what really what they're thinking about, right? C can we say Nazis are Nazis? But damn, they run a good, you know, good trains. You know, they, they run good airports. I, I don't know about you. The one thing I do know about you, the more anti-Semitic a country is, the better their airlines. Right? And ever been on Lufthansa or Swiss Air or Austrian Air? Somebody told me the best airline in the world is Air Malaysia. They hate Jews. Great airlines. Right? Emirates, supposed to be a great airline. Right? Jewish Airlines, God help you. Get a Coke, you know. Southwest Airlines. Uh, you know. All right. Never mind. Rabbi Yossi wasn't sure. Rabbi Yossi could see what the Romans could do, but at the same time, he saw the terror that they brought to the world, the brutality of their culture. And he was worried that if you participate in that culture in any way, you imbibe the brutality. But on the other hand, he respected the fact that they could build great cities, their engineering acumen, and their civil, their civil order acumen. Rabbi Shimon, who was the closest student of Rabbi Akiba, he hates them. He sees them as nothing but brutal, nothing but cruelty. And he says, don't think that what they did has any merit. All that they made, they made to serve themselves. They laid out streets to settle prostitutes, baths to pamper themselves, bridges to levy tolls. He hates the Romans. Now Yehuda's this kid, and he goes blabbing this all over the community, right? He kept telling until they were heard by the Roman government. And the government decrees, Judah, who acclaimed us, shall be acclaimed. So he becomes the Nasi. He becomes the head of the community. Yossi, who remained silent, shall be exiled to Sepphoris. Okay? Exiled from the community. Sepphoris, by the way, is not so bad. It's this beautiful, it's, it's Capernaum. It's the beautiful, it's a beautiful town near the Galilee, in the Galilee, near, near the Sea of Galilee. It's like being exiled to Lake Tahoe, you know, Nebuch, you know. Shimon, who vilified us, he's going to die. They put a contract out on his life, right? He hates them, they're going to kill him because he's a, he's a rebel. He's a rebel. So what happens? As a result, Rabbi Shimon and his son hid out in the house of study where every day Rabbi Shimon's wife would bring him a, br a, a bread and a jug of water, which they sustained themselves. Now, let, let me ask you a silly question. If you're a rabbi and the Roman police are looking for you, where would be the dumbest place to go hide? In the base medrash, right, in the synagogue, right? Unless you thought that they, you know, they can't tell us apart, so you wouldn't know which one was Shimon. But, I mean, why do you suppose he went to the base medrash? Yes, because that's, the, that's his world. His world is a world in which Torah is the only truth. There is no truth outside of Torah. Torah is the only truth. And he wants to separate himself from the world of, of everything else and, and live in the world of Torah. So he goes to the safest place for his soul, which is the base midrash. But the problem is that your soul can live in the base midrash, but your body still has to eat. So how does he eat? The wife brings him food and water. The wife is his connection to the world. And he realizes that this isn't going to work. So he says to his son, women's resolution is frail. Your mother put to the torture may reveal the place we're hiding. Now you can read that in two ways. Either he's worried about her and the responsibility she bears, or he has very little respect for her, but either way, right? We can't do this. So where do they go now? So they went and hid in a cave. A cave. What's a cave? A cave represents what? A hole. It can be the womb. It can be the grave. 
Remember Plato had something to do with a cave? In Plato's world, the cave was the place of illusion. For Rabbi Shimon, it's not the place of illusion. It's the refuge from the world. Why is he hiding in a cave? He's not just hiding from the Romans' contract against his life. He wants nothing to do with them. He wants nothing to do with the Roman world. He wants to live a life of pure spirituality. In Rabbi Shimon's world, spirituality and domesticity have to be separated. The world of the eternal can have nothing to do with the world of the temporal. The world of the holy can have nothing to do with the world of the everyday. So he goes and he hides in a cave where he can live a totally spiritual life. A spiritual life, unconnected to the world in any way. And listen to what happens, right? They went and hid in a cave and a miracle occurred. A carob tree and a well were created for them. If there's a miracle, what does that tell you? That God approves of what they're doing. God feeds them. And what are they doing? Listen to this image. The image is beautiful. They would remove their garments and sit up to their necks in sand and study the entire day. And when it's time for prayer, they put their garments back on, wrapped themselves in their prayer shawls and prayed. And afterwards, they removed their garments so they wouldn't wear out. Now, if you have a man who takes off his clothes and buries himself in the sand, what do you see? His head. And that's right. He becomes nothing but a thinking head. Because only in the thinking head can he live a pure life. Whenever you invite the body into the calculation, you now connect yourself with the world of temporality. And he doesn't want to live in the world of time. He wants to live in the world of eternity. He doesn't want to live in the ordinary world. He wants to live in the world of the holy. He wants to be religious 24 hours a day. He doesn't want to have to deal with the schmutz and the dreck and the bother and the aggravation and the irritation of everyday life. He wants to live a holy life. He doesn't want to have to deal with cooking meals, paying taxes, taking children to school, figuring out what to do with politics. He wants to live a holy life. And God lets him do it. So buried up to the sand, and in, in, up to his neck, he lives a life just as a talking head for 12 years. 12 years. And after 12 years, what happens? Elianavi comes, the prophet Elijah comes, and he stands at the mouth of the cave, and he says, tell the son of Yochai that Caesar is dead and the decree annulled. So they went out. That's an interesting image. What happens if you're in a cave for 12 years and you go outside in the sunlight? What's going to happen? You can't see a damn thing, right? right? Yeah, right. And they see, what do they see people doing? They see people plowing and sowing. Is that a sin? No, what is it? It's living. And, pl- and not just living, it's a mitzvah. It's motzi lechem in aretz. It's a mitzvah, right? Plowing and sowing. But for Rabbi Shimon, who has carefully divided the world between the everyday and the heavenly, the world of time and the world of eternity, the world of, of, of spirituality and the world of domesticity, seeing people spending time making a living, gefald, why? Why would you waste your time doing that? Rabbi Shimon exclaimed, these men forsake life eternal and they engage in life temporal. And here's a beautiful image. Whatever they cast their eyes upon was immediately incinerated. Isn't that a beautiful image for judgmentalism? Anyone here have a teenager at home? Right? And the kid sees you doing stuff and they give you that look, you know? Not like my Bubby's look. This is a teenager's look, which is... And there's a word, by the way, in English that captures this. It's whatever which is just total disdain for anything, right? What? You don't get it. You don't get it. Whatever. 
whatever, whatever. It's just, and that's, yeah, that's, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And God comes to him and says, have you come out to destroy my world? Return to your cave. So that's interesting. What is God saying? Which world is God's? The world of the cave or the world of the everyday? The world of the everyday. My world. My world. Go back to the cave. So they go back in the cave for 12 months. And finally, they come to the conclusion, even the punishment of the wicked in hell is no more than 12 months. That's a Jewish rule, by the way. You can't go to hell for longer than 12 months. That's why, by the way, you only say Kaddish for... Right. You'll miss them. By the time they're older, you're going to miss them. I swear to God, you're going to miss... You're going to come back... To, I, 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 well, I, I promise you. Right? All right, so what happens? A divine voice came and said, leave your cave. And they left the cave. And whenever Rabbi Eliezer injured anyone, Rabbi Shimon would heal them and say, my son, you and I are all the world needs. They still have utter disdain for the world. But now they say, so it's you and me, kid. We're the only ones who understand the truth. We're the only ones who get it. Now, there's, an end, there's, there's three endings to this story. That's the first one. In that ending of the story, they never make their peace with the world. But God said, get out of the cave. Why does God say get out of the cave? Because where has Judaism lived? Where has Jewish life lived? We do not have monasteries. We do not have convents. We don't have sanctuaries, even though we call it that. There is, you cannot leave the world and call yourself a Jew. If you're a Jew, you take responsibility for the world. If you're a Jew, you live your spirituality in the world. If you're a Jew, you find the eternal in the temporal. You find the holy in the everyday. You find the sacred in the hard work of life. Leave the cave, says God. And Rabbi Shimon says, he's wrong, but I'll do it here anyway. Now comes a new ending to the story. The rabbis didn't like that ending. This is typical in rabbinic literature. If they don't like the ending of the story, they give you another ending of the story. So there's another ending of the story. This is beautiful. It was Sabbath Eve. It was Friday night. And it was getting dark. Erev Shabbos. And they see an old man running in the twilight with two bunches of myrtle in his hands. Myrtle's a fragrant leaf. And they asked him, what are they for? And he said to them, they are in honor of the Shabbat. And they say to him, but one bunch should be enough. What do you need, two? And the guy says, you know, Shabbos is commanded twice. The Ten Commandments are repeated in the Torah. One in Exodus, remember the Shabbat. And one in Devarim, Deuteronomy, says observe the Shabbat. So Rabbi Shimon said to his son, see how precious the commandments are to Israel. And their minds were put at ease. Explain. Somebody explain. Why did that, what was it about that confrontation with the old man and the leaves? The old man and the myrtle bunches. Incense. Why is it that that put their minds at ease? One, one at a time. They get, they get what? How to live today, but to do it embracing what the Torah says. How do you do it? You observe and do the. So, one thing, let's go one thing at a time. Let's begin with the notion of mitzvah. What is a mitzvah? Yes, I know, but what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is a way of bringing an eternal consciousness into the temporal world. It's a way of living the sacred in the middle of the hard work of every day. He 
he sees this guy, and he sees this guy being conscientious about the performance of a commandment, and he says, commandments, that's it. Why do we Jews have a language of mitzvah? So that we will be reminded in every moment of our hard work in the world that we have a sacred task to bring blessing to the world. So that you won't forget your task to bring blessing as you transact business in the regular world, right? And at the same time, you won't forget the world as you pursue your spiritual life with God. So in order to maintain a, a, a both connections, a connection with the temporal, with the everyday world, and with the sacred, you have mitzvot. That's one answer. Give me another answer. What else is here? What mitzvah are we talking about? Shabbat. Why Shabbat? Why is Sabbath a particularly interesting mitzvah to pick on here? I mean, notice the guy wasn't running from a kosher butcher, you know. He wasn't running with his pledge card from the Federation, right? Well, you could have done, you, by the way, you could have done those. You really could have said tzedakah is a way of living with money in an ugly world, but using money for sacred purposes. Kosher is a way of living in the natural world and not becoming a beast. Shabbos is quintessentially Jewish in this way. In what way? Yes. Exactly. It's the perfect example of living in the temporal world and then stopping and then switching to... In other words, God says, I'll let you go back to the cave, but only once a week. I'll let you live a spiritually perfect world once a week. The rest of the week, I need you to be in the world doing the work of the world. There is a six-to-one ratio. You'll do six days of work in the world and make the world whole. And then on the seventh day, I'll open the gate and let you back into the Garden of Eden. And you can taste the sweetness of the Garden of Eden. But then when you make Havdalah, it's back outside again, back into the world, and do the work of the world. You are not permitted in Judaism to spend seven days a week in the Garden. We do not have a monastic tradition. But neither are you permitted to live only in the world of work and forget your sacred task. Your sacred task is to be a blessing in the world, to be a vessel of blessing in the world. Because of that sacred task, you become God's partner and you have a right to look at the world with a very peculiar set of eyes, to see all of the brokenness and injustice of the world and to challenge it at every moment. How do you challenge it? You remember what it was like to be a slave. And you build a society around you that reflects that consciousness so that no one is stripped of dignity and humanity as we were in Egypt. And if that's too hard for you, I'll give you a day a week when you can go back and taste the sweetness of the garden. But then I insist that you come back into the world and live in this world. You are not permitted to escape from this world through spirituality nor are you permitted to escape the task of spirit by living only in the world. A Jew lives in both worlds at the same time. Living in both worlds at the same time, maintaining that vision of God's good world, even as we live in this broken world, championing justice and goodness in this world, feeling the plight of the broken in this world, that's the meaning and the purpose of Jewish existence. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know if we have any time. I have lots. I can stay all night, but Ari wants, Ari wants some music. And, 
two questions. Sir, you mind a question, please? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I would say that I, I would argue that that the blessing that, that what the rest of the Torah does is spell out that blessing and not just the Torah, but the rest of the Torah tradition, all the Talmudic tradition down to this day. That's what rabbis are here to do is to help us know how we can be blessings in this moment. Tzedek, we, we have a vocabulary. You know, it's a wonderful, there was a very famous linguist named Benjamin Lee Worf who once pointed out that Eskimos have 27 words for snow. You know, because if you're an Eskimo, it matters that the snow is like this and like that, right? Anyone ever been to Italy, you know that, that Italians have 28 words for macaroni, right? Mosticelli and penne and leather, you know? Jews have 52 words for justice. Tzedek, Yosher, Chesed, Mishpah, they're, and they all have different resonances. And part of growing up as a Jew and learning to be a Jew is to learn that vocabulary. Tzedek is one of those words. It means doing what's right. Then there's another word called chesed. Chesed goes beyond tzedek. Because tzedek, I give you what I owe you. Chesed, I give you what I owe you and 10% more. Why? Because I like you. Because <laughs> you need it more than me. Because I, I have rachmanis on you. Rachmanis means I feel your pain. There's a whole vocabulary that goes along with being a blessing. This is the obsession of the Jewish people. Eskimos are obsessed with snow. Italians with macaroni and Jews with justice. Why? Because we have more words for justice than any other thing in the world. And that's, that's what you're talking about. We've developed this highly articulated sense of the forms of just and righteous living. That's what we're really good at. And, and, and a culture for teaching it. Someone guess, Ed. Here's what I'm advocating. I'm advocating that you have to, t the question is work and welfare. Work, wel welfare and work, work and welfare. I'm not advocating work and welfare as a policy. I'm advocating the following. Create a welfare system that protects people but also doesn't rob them of their dignity, that doesn't rob them of their humanity, that doesn't force them into a position of dependence but encourages them to rise up and care for themselves. Now, that's the ideal. How you create that system, what policy directive you follow, whether it's welfare, welf work to welfare to work, whether there's work study, I don't know. We can argue, you and me, all of us could argue, about which form of a welfare system does that better. But I can tell you that the ideal in Jewish life is to provide for the poor, but to do it in such a way that protects their dignity. You see? And I would argue, by the way, that the health care debate, I mean, I, I, I think I would argue, and I think Rabbi Spitz would probably agree with me, that, that, that health care, a community has an obligation to provide a basic standard of health care to every citizen. How do you do that? I haven't the foggiest idea. 
Whether a national program with insurance exchanges is the better way to do it than a single-payer system, whether, you, whether we leave the system as it is and provide tax incentives, I don't know. Because there you're not talking anymore about, about the ideal. You're talking about what's the most effective, efficient, and pragmatic way to reach that ideal with the fewest unintended consequences. And, and, I, and we can argue which policy directive. That's why I really resent when somebody in the Jewish community says, the Torah says, and this is the policy. I cannot find anywhere in the Torah where it tells me I have to vote for Democratic candidates. I can't find anywhere in the Torah it says I tell I vote for Republican candidates. I'm told care for the poor, but protect their dignity. Care for the world. Provide health care. Provide education. Now, how do we do that? Now we can have a really interesting and civil, polite debate within Jewish circles about the policy directives that fulfill those those. those um, those ideals and those aspirations. And that's how I think the community ought to be. So in my congregation, and I don't know what they do in your congregation, in my congregation, I will speak about these ideals from the Bema, but I never speak about policy from the Bema for a simple reason, because I think that politics should always be done as dialogue. I think politics should always be a conversation and a debate, and a sermon is a monologue. I do all the talking, you sit and sleep, right? And I don't think it's fair for me to tell you what the policy is without you having the opportunity to tell me that I'm crazy. Because when it comes to the aspirations of Torah vision, I'm an expert. That's what I'd studied in rabbi school. But when it comes to policy directives, I don't know more about it than you do. Let's discuss together from our perspectives what set of policy directives and who, which representatives carry us to those aspirations in the most effective way. And that's how I think the Jewish community ought to conduct political conversations. Okay? Yeah. I got a B. Which is why I became a rabbi, to get back at that teacher, right? Because here's what living a Jewish life does for you. And I said it before, and I'll just say it again. Living a Jewish life does not make you thin. Trust me on that. <laughs> Living a Jewish life will not make you rich. Living a Jewish life will not make you powerful. Living a Jewish life will not make you popular. It's not designed to do any of that. Living a Jewish life, I'm not even sure it makes you happy. That's something that we can debate. Living a Jewish life is designed to do something else. And carried out properly, it does it very well. It's designed to give you a life of significance, a life of importance, a life that matters. Right? I wrote a little book for 13-year-olds called Tough Questions Jews Ask. It's actually one of the biggest Jewish bestsellers in the world, but nobody knows about it. <laughs> because 13-year-olds read it. 13-year-olds read it. And I said to the kids in the book, being, um, the purpose of Jewish life is to turn you into a hero. A hero is not a person necessarily rushes into a building to save a pussycat. A hero is a person who makes his or her life into a symbol of a higher aspiration and therefore knows that their life matters, that their life is important, that their life is significant. To consider yourself God's partner in bringing blessing to the world, that's the, great, that's the purpose of Jewish life. And if you devote yourself to that life and you become a hero of that in your own special way, then you get to live a life of dignity. You get to live a life of goodness. 
You get to live a life that matters. And to me, that's the greatest human quest in all of human, in the human world. It's not a quest for immortality. I have absolutely no desire to live forever. But I have a desire to, to live well and leave behind something to my children, a legacy of living with dignity and living with importance and living with significance. That's what the Jewish tradition promises. So I say to kids, become God's partner in bringing wholeness to the world, and you too can be, count yourself as a hero. And that's what Judaism is all about. Tomorrow, tomorrow morning? Tomorrow morning, we're going to take up this question. We've talked about the collective Jewish purpose. Tomorrow morning, I want to talk about gaining an individual sense of Jewish purpose. That's tomorrow morning's lecture, okay? Thank you very much.